0: Well, like I said, this is Easter Sunday, and it actually concludes a series that we've been doing called The Real Jesus. We've been looking at um, the life of Jesus, and we're trying to uh, peel back all the things that we've heard or all the stereotypes we've heard about Jesus and really understand who the real Jesus is. And today, I'd like to begin by reading to you a text from the Bible that we will be considering that's found in the Gospel of Luke. And this part of the story is after Jesus had risen from the dead. Here's what we read. And if you want to follow along on the screens, you can. If you have a written Bible, you can follow along in Luke chapter 24, or you can follow along on your phones. We read this in Luke 24. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate it in their presence. If you were to ask the average person in America, what do you think of Easter? You would probably hear a lot of positive opinions about the Easter holiday. And people are always like, oh, it's such a wonderful time where you can... You can do so many things because it's springtime and winter's gone. It's just a time of new beginnings, they might say. So I'd like to consider some Easter messages that I found on the real interwebs with you today. So here's one. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know your thoughts on this. Um, Easter, the first one is this. Easter is the time to rejoice and be thankful for the gift of life, love, and joy. Happy Easter. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Life, love, and joy. Now, let's go to the second one. Easter is the one time of year when it's safe to put all your eggs in one basket. (laughs) So apparently in life, there's one, there's a basket, there's multiple baskets, and there's all these eggs, like in January and February. And Easter's that one time where there's one basket and a bunch of eggs, and you're supposed to put it in there. Uh, The third one, I think this one's my favorite. Easter tells us that life is to be interpreted, not simply in terms of things. But in terms of ideals, (laughs) now I don't even know what that means, (laughs) but it sounds inspirational. And I do like colored eggs. So what do you know? So fun stuff. Um, Now, over the centuries, the Easter message about Jesus physical body and his resurrection has been sort of changed or watered down into inspirational thoughts about springtime and about feeling good. Uh, And, uh, you know, over the centuries, that has just changed. And in the text we just read, the very last thing the followers of Jesus would have felt if they encountered the risen Christ was inspired. They didn't necessarily feel comforted either. You see a dead man coming back to life who was buried for three days suddenly shows up in your living room and starts talking to you, doesn't make you think about colored eggs or fuzzy bunnies or little baby chicks. It doesn't. And you wouldn't necessarily think about beautiful flowers or butterflies when a formerly dead man walks into your living room, gives you a high five, and then eats a fish fillet sandwich. The disciples' reaction to the risen Jesus was what? It says they were startled. They were like, um, uh, and it said they were frightened. Ah, ah, they were, and they were filled with doubt. They were troubled. They were troubled and they were filled with doubt. And why does it read that way? Why did they react this way? Well, because Easter today It's not a nice spiritual story about with a moral lesson. Easter is about the physical and the material resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Jesus' disciples struggled to believe it. They said, this cannot be happening. I can't believe this is happening. We're touching him. We're seeing him. He's eating a piece of fish. It even says that it says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones. They literally thought he was a ghost. They're like, uh, zoink, scoops. It's a ghost in the room, Jesus, the ghost. And they're like, woo, and it was all crazy. And it says they watched him eat and drink and they watched the food disappear. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and they, and he ate it and it was gone. It was totally gone on this Easter Sunday. I want to ask this question. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why? Why does it matter? Now, I believe that the physical, tangible resurrection of Jesus matters for three reasons. One, it matters for your mind, what you believe. Number two, it matters for your will, how you choose to live. And number three, it matters for your heart, how you choose to feel. So I've called today's talk as we conclude this series about the real Jesus. I've called the talk. The real Jesus is alive. I'm going to pray and invite God's presence. And then we're going to take a look at some things together. Will you join me in prayer? God, we come before you today and we are grateful and thankful and amazed. And God, I know that there's people in this room that are across the board. Some are very, really excited about this day. Some people don't even know why they're here. And so, God, I ask that you would put power on this message. God, if you are real, if you rose from the dead, you will put power on this message that you would help us to understand your word and what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing all around us. So help me to speak as I should lead me to say things. Maybe I wasn't necessarily planning on saying, and we give this all to you. We love you in Jesus name. Amen. So why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why is it not just a spiritual thing? Why did did, uh, the writers go so far just to say he's not a ghost? The Apostle Paul and others in the New Testament, which if you don't know what the New Testament is, it's the second half of the Bible. It starts with the story of Jesus and then carries on after Jesus' life, death, death, and resurrection. Why in the New Testament do all the writers go to great lengths to proclaim and to discuss and to contemplate the risen Jesus? Why does that matter? Well, I'm going to start with the first reason I mentioned before the Jesus physical resurrection matters for your mind. Here's what we read in Luke 24, verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Now, many people I have met ask the question, can I have a relationship with God even though I have doubts? Does the fact that I have doubts disqualify me from this whole Christianity thing? I try to believe, but I still have some reservations. Can I actually move forward with Jesus? Now, I don't know your personal story, so I don't know unless we talk personally why you may have doubts or why you may have significant reservations with Christianity. I do know. That there are a ton of reasons why people doubt other than intellectual reasons. And I want to talk with you about some of those now. First, and you're following along in your notes, you can write this down. And it's uh, the non-intellectual reasons for doubt. Now I was raised in a family that always talked about God and I grew up hearing the stories about Jesus and it wasn't out of the ordinary for me and my family to think that it was totally possible for Jesus to come back from death. But I do know that many of you were raised in homes where God wasn't mentioned or talked about at all and perhaps You thought that religion was just, your parents may have thought religion was just some money-making scheme. It was sort of a racket that was used by religious people to pull the wool over someone's eyes to make a little bit of money to rip off gullible, weak people. So it may be that you have doubts about uh, God because you were raised in a family that just didn't believe. Now, obviously, parents play an incredible role in shaping a child's view of God. In fact, if you take a look at history's most famous atheists, whether it's Madeline Murray O'Hare or Sigmund Freud or Karl Marx or Bertrand Russell, all of them. All of them have one thing in common. They had very painful relationships with their fathers. Either their fathers abandoned them, their fathers died early, or they just grew up despising their fathers. And there are a number of other studies that indicate that a strained or a non-existent relationship with your earthly father can create a discomfort or difficulty in following or believing in our heavenly father. Our family of origin can either ease the, or make it more difficulty, uh, the fact that we, we believe. It makes it either more difficult or easy to believe based on what your family of origin was like. Another reason to str- that people struggle to believe is that people have doubts because of the bad behavior of Christians. Now, maybe you've experienced a Christian that left a bad taste in your mouth. Maybe uh, you know someone from work or from school or from your family and they loudly boasted that they were a Christian and they were always had worship music when they picked you up in the car. And, and they would always talk about religion in the Bible and they were always trying to trick you into going to church with them or they're always trying to get you saved or something like that. But they lived in a way that was totally hypocritical. Totally contrary to what they believed, they lived in a different way. They were not nice people. Some of them were terrible co-workers. Now, maybe you had a Christian mom or dad who abandoned a marriage or who abandoned you as a child. And they seek, or you could have had a family member that secretly abused you or abused somebody else. Maybe you grew up with a family member or a parent that struggled with alcohol or drugs. Or they were utterly deceptive in their business practices. And there are so many things that Christians can do that leave people with a bad taste in their mouth regarding Christianity. And so I've talked with people, and as I'm sure you've had, and, they, and you talk to me and say, you know what, my parents were crazy. They were always running around on some religious crusade. They're always running off to a Bible study. They're always trying to connect to some feeling with God. But like, if I'm honest, they didn't even really love each other. And they weren't even that good at loving us. I know adults... That grew up in church hearing a message that was very narrow-minded and very judgmental. And the messages were always about hellfire and damnation. And the pastor who would deliver the messages was like almost giddy that he got to do it. He was like, yeah, you want to hear about hell? Let's do it. I'm going to do this every week for the rest of my life. And he would talk about hell a lot. And maybe your former church or maybe you you know someone that grew up in a church. They didn't seem to have any welcome for people who were struggling at all. People who had real problems. There was no acknowledgement of the church having any kind of weaknesses. And so I understand that bad experiences with Christians can turn people off from considering Christianity. There is much in the larger Christian world with which I wouldn't want to be associated with either. It wouldn't take us long. If you and I were to sit down and compose a list of all the things that annoy us about Christians, we could come up with a really long list. Whether it's TV evangelists who say, I will make sure that you get a financial blessing if you give a blessing to this financial blessing to this church. So your seed of faith kind of thing. We have people that if you they'll say, hey, look, if you uh, I'll pray for healing, but you got to make sure you give a donation here. Christian leaders, they turn their churches into a cheering section for a particular political party. There's people that use the Bible to justify violence. They justify racism and they'll justify just about any kind of xenophobia. Now, here's a news flash. Here's the reality. Every human being. Whether Christian or non-Christian does a lot of cringeworthy, cruel, and ignorant things. And I wouldn't necessarily want to be associated with them either. You understand what I'm saying? That the crux of the problem is if you don't want to be associated with Christianity because of the bad behavior of particular Christians by that same logic, if you were to apply the same reasoning to the rest of your life, you probably can't be associated with any group. Whatsoever, I mean, you can't be associated with a volleyball team. You couldn't be associated with any kind of Fortune 500 company. You couldn't, it would cause you to reflect and pause uh, when you uh, follow your favorite hip-hop artist or your favorite social media influencer. Because the only way to get rid of ignorant, hypocritical people is to get rid of human beings altogether. Okay? Everybody, everybody has bad behavior from time to time. And so, yes, Christians, you do a lot of stupid things, but so does everybody else, every other being, including me. And I'm not talking about you guys here in the room. I'm talking about the people to your left and to your right. (laughs) Also, also some people struggle with, um, um, also, uh, also some people struggle to believe because they compare their faith with the faith of others. People have doubts because of comparing our faith with the faith of others. Some people struggle and they say, hey, I meet people in church. And when I'm around church people, their faith seems to come so easy. They're always talking about new spiritual breakthroughs with God. And they're like, God spoke to me and said this. And he told me that. And everything is just. So awesome. And I, I have not had any of these experiences. I mean, I pray. I go to church on a regular basis. I read my Bible some of the time. And I even make even make financial gifts. I even maybe even belong to a community group where we study the Bible together. And I don't have the same feelings that these other people have about God. I don't feel it like they feel it. Is there something wrong with me? Well, If you think that normal faith means that you have to have a constant feeling of God's presence, I would like to encourage you to read a book that's straight from the middle of the Bible. It's called the Book of Psalms. And in the Book of Psalms, uh, you get a completely different picture than the picture I just painted. Because the writer of Psalms constantly writes about not feeling connected with God. His feeling of being abandoned and disappointed. He writes about not experiencing God's blessing. He looks around and he sees that everyone else is doing well and connecting with God. And he's not doing well or connected with God. And the Psalms tell us that it is normal. Normal faith is not always lived on a mountaintop. Often faith is lived in a valley or in a desert. It's normal To feel a mix of both faith and doubt. And here's the reality. You can still move forward in your relationship with God, even if you struggle with doubt. In fact, one of the ways you can do that is you can ask Jesus to help you with your faith. There's lots of these stories in the Bible where there's mixed feelings that where someone will say to Jesus, Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see what's going on there? There's something mixed inside of the person. They're like, I believe, but I don't really totally believe. Help me with my unbelief. The power of God can break through that and help you with that feeling of unbelief. Those doubts that you feel. Well. I want to switch gears and talk about this. There are intellectual reasons to believe. Now, this is a huge topic. I can't cover it completely today. And I know the analytical mind in the room would like me to cover everything uh, ad nauseum. And I'm not going to do that for you. But uh, what I would like to do is share a few books with you. Now, if you're a reader uh, and you like a good book and you are someone that struggles with intellectual doubt, or you know somebody who struggles with intellectual doubt, I have a couple of great suggestions for you that uh, really address some of the intellectual questions of Christianity. And the first book I'd like to recommend is written by a guy named Timothy Keller, and it's called The Reason for God. He's a New York Times bestseller. This book has changed the way we think uh, about, like, talking with people that don't understand what they believe. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, it answers or tries to answer all the hard questions, and it asks really hard questions. And it's done from a very humble posture and attitude. And so it deals with such questions as how could a good God allow suffering? Anyone here struggle with that? Uh, Has science disproved Christianity? Hmm, interesting question. Or how can I actually believe the Bible? And so it really tackles some of those really interesting questions that we might wrestle with. Another really good book is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Strobel was a former award-winning journalist uh, for the Chicago Tribune. And in this book, he went around the country interviewing scholars about different aspects of Jesus' life and whether it's possible to believe what we read in the Bible. And I think these two books are a really great start for people that have deep intellectual doubts or struggle to believe. Uh, And it's also good for you, those who do believe, but you don't have the words to share with somebody. If when you're sharing your life with Jesus and you come against a question that seems really difficult, I recommend that you recommend these books for people to, to read. And you can read them yourself. So these are really great Books for people that struggle. So, but let me offer a few suggestions beyond these uh, book recommendations uh, intellectual reasons to believe. I'm going to give you two this morning. And if, if you want to talk about this after the, the service, I would love to talk to you about it. Um, first one is this. What accounts for the story of Christ's physical resurrection? Now, Tom Wright, who many regard as the world's foremost New Testament scholar, He wrote a 700-page book entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in that book, Tom Wright goes into extensive detail, demonstrating that in all of recorded history before the time of Jesus, we have no story ever in any culture like the physical resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. So when it was written about Jesus, it was the absolute first time. The physical resurrection of Jesus was not just some recycled myth from ancient, the ancient world. No one in history ever told such a story before in such a way that made a difference. People living in Jesus day in the first century were completely uninterested and they were suspicious about somebody coming back from the dead. What do you know? People still get a little suspicious today. And the Greeks, there was two main groups here. There was the Jews and the Greeks and the Greeks. For instance, they were not looking forward to a physical resurrection. What the Greeks at this time believed is that when you died, your soul left your body. And that was the uh, transcendent experience you were looking for. The soul would leave this material, wasted, terrible earth. And your soul would live on forever and ever. And your physical material body would just go away. Now, the Jews did believe in a resurrection, but they believed that this resurrection would happen at the end of time. And so the Jews in Jesus' day, who heard Jesus' disciples saying, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, they go, this is impossible. It can't be the case because there's still sin and problems and evil in the world. And it can't happen. It's supposed to happen all together at one time. It's not supposed to happen in the middle of history. And so maybe you might be sitting here and go, okay, that's interesting. But maybe the story grew over time. Maybe like people thought would say, you know, the, you know, the Jesus, uh, his body is rotting in a grave. The original disciple said, you know, the spirit of Jesus lives on, even though that he's dead. And then over time, that whole idea that the disciples started, like the spirit of Jesus is living on, turned into like a more concrete story where people actually did start to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. Well, I would suggest to you. That if the story was going to morph, it would have morphed in a completely different direction. We need to remember that the Christian church was formed, first formed in the promised land in ancient Palestine. And so the Jews would not have believed in a physical resurrection by one person in the middle of history. And the Greeks would have never believed it because they didn't believe that bodies got resurrected. They only believe your spirit got resurrected. And so if the story was going to morph over time, it would have morphed into a story about the physical resurrection into a spiritual resurrection, not the other way around. Not when the message was spreading so rapidly among the Greeks and among the known world. So you might say, well, you know, that's a really good point, Chris. I didn't think of that. Uh, Historically, it would have been impossible to totally believe that. So I'm totally bought in now. Give me, what about another reason to actually believe in the physical tangible resurrection? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, And I think this is probably my favorite reason. What accounts for women? Being the first eyewitnesses. Now we can't emphasize enough. The fact that the New Testament. Records women. As being the first eyewitnesses. Of Jesus resurrection. Preach. Okay. Yeah. I hear Preach. men and women. That's a good thing. Woo. Yeah. Preach. 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 <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yes. It's both. Yeah. Come on. Come on up. Who was Celsus? Celsus. Was a Greek philosopher. Who lived in the second century. A.D. And he was highly antagonistic towards Christianity. And he wrote a number of works that listed all his problems with the Christian faith. And one of the arguments that he thought was the strongest went a little something like this. Let me read you a paraphrase on the screen. You can follow along. It says, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical and they can't be believed. Boo! Can we get a collective boo? Boo! Boo! Now here's what's worse about the ancient world. Many of Celsus's readers believed him. They thought this was a really strong argument. In ancient societies, as you know, women were marginalized. The testimony of women, get this, the testimony of women wasn't even accepted in court. Because they, at the time, men were like, well, women will just say anything to get off the stand. And they would just, they marginalized women. They couldn't believe them. They weren't trustworthy. They were so much lower class than men. They would just tell you anything and we can't believe them. Do you understand what this means for Christianity? It means a couple things. First, the gospel writers were very progressive. And secondly, the gospel writers were not, who were writing these stories down. If they were trying to get their movement off the ground, saying something like Jesus was rising from the dead. The last thing they would have done was say that the first eyewitnesses were women. They would not have said that the women were the ones who were first to see Jesus up from the dead, away from the empty tomb. The only possible reason for the presence of women in the stories of Jesus in these accounts that we read is that these writers were actually trying to report what had actually happened. They were reporting what they saw, that Jesus was physically and tangibly raised from the dead. So, yeah, for women. Uh, Let me move on, and I want to consider this. Why does Jesus' physical resurrection matter for your will? Well, lots of people talk about spirituality and having spiritual conversations. And if I had to count the number of spiritual conversations I have per year, uh, let me just say it's a lot. And people like to say things like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I like all the feels, the feel-good things, but I don't like... The uh, the the kind of the doctrine, the hierarchy or sort of like the traditional aspects that come with religion. I like all the feels, the feeling that there is a force in the world that's working with me to accomplish everything I want in my life. But I would not want and I have to find that from within, but I wouldn't want to find that from an external source. Uh, that is common. And we say things like, well, we're all on the journey. You know, well, hey, there, you have a piece of the truth. I have a piece of the truth. And we're all on a beautiful spiritual journey. Maybe you've heard this parable. There's a parable about a bunch of blind men and an elephant. And they're trying to figure out what the elephant is actually like. And they're all standing around this elephant. And each blind person is trying to touch a different part of the elephant. And uh, if the story goes, that one of the blind men is touching the tail, and and the blind man describes the elephant. He says the elephant is a lot like a rope. And then another blind man is touching uh, the elephant's side, like that big wide side. He's like, you know what, an elephant is a lot like a wall. And yet there was another blind man who is touching kind of one of the. Um, one of the legs of the elephant. He said, you know, the elephant is a lot like a tree. And yet another blind man was grabbing one of the tusks. And he's saying, you know what? An elephant is a lot like a giant sword. And this parable is designed to communicate that we all just have a part of the truth. That we can't see the whole. We don't know the whole. And people today might say, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You have a piece of the truth. I have a piece of the truth. And that person has a piece of the truth. We all just have a little piece of the truth. We're all touching the same elephant, but we're all touching different parts based on our experiences and based on what we choose to believe. But you see, there's a collision here between that thinking and what Jesus did by coming back from the dead. That's not what Jesus said who he said he was. When Jesus, before he died and rose from the dead, what he said is not this. He didn't say, I am a part of the truth. He didn't say, I am one truth among many truths. He didn't say, I am the pointer to the truth. He said, I am the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when John, oh, and when Luke, uh, the writer of this, right? We're looking at Luke. Yeah, yeah. Luke and John. Anyway, they're all together. Uh, So when Luke wrote this, (laughs) when Luke wrote this, when he wrote that Jesus wrote from the dead, he's saying, with the resurrection of Jesus, the journey is over. The journey is complete. We've reached our destination with the resurrection. The day of questioning is over. We've got our answer. The physical and tangible resurrection of Jesus means that each of us have an opportunity to face the truth and to face a choice. Resurrection changes everything. If Jesus came back from the dead And if he came back to life, it means we must consider the claims of Jesus. At least consider them, And we must consider who he is and who he said he was. We must consider if his claim is true. If he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he died and never came back to life. Okay, wrong. Let's go to the next person. But if there is evidence that he came back from the dead, you should take a look. What does it mean that he is the way, the truth, and the life? When he says, come follow me. When he invites you into the good life, when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What does that mean? Well, if you didn't come back from the dead, it doesn't mean much. But if he came back to life, surprise, what does that mean? And the physical resurrection of Jesus doesn't leave us with the option to consider him as one source of potential truth. Either we can believe that he rose from the dead and accept it and welcome him into our lives because he wants something for us that's good. Or we can just reject it. We don't have to accept it. And the thing you'll discover about the person of Jesus is that he never forces you to do anything. What he does is he invites you to make a choice. And you can choose to, to follow him or you can choose to not follow him. And that's what's happening here. Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus matters for your will. So we've considered why his resurrection matters for our minds. We've taken a look at why it matters for our wills. And I want to talk about this lastly before we close. Let's finish by considering why Jesus' physical resurrection matters for your heart. Now, I think the resurrection matters for our hearts because the resurrection deals with the past and the resurrection deals with the future. So many people live with a sense of disappointment of unrealized dreams. It's become popular over the last 20 years to create something called a bucket list. Things that people want to do before they kick the bucket and die. What do you think the number one thing is that people want to do on their bucket list or have on their bucket list before they die? What do you think it is? Skydiving. Ooh, that's not bad. Can I get um, 50 to 60 more? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Yeah, so skydiving, that's really good. Any other guesses? According to surveys, I'm going to give you one last chance. Anyone want to throw it in there? Travel? Travel, Yes, that's on there, definitely. Cool. Skydiving and travel. Okay, cool. We'll just go over with that. I'm not going to ask for any more (laughs) audience participation because I'm very insecure about no one saying anything. Okay, cool. We'll take this out in editing. All right, cool. All right. um, According to surveys, the number one thing that people want to do on their bucket list is become a millionaire. They want to become a millionaire. They want to get rich. Number two is travel the world. Number three is see the Northern lights. Yeah. Yeah. See, look. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No one wants to admit number one about the millionaire, but people are like, yeah, Northern lights. It's such a great experience. I don't want to be a millionaire. I just want to see the Northern lights. How are you going to get there, bruh? All right, cool. (laughs) Number four is to walk the great wall of China. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so I don't know what your bucket list is, but all of us have disappointments. All of us have things in our hearts that we wish we would have done differently. Uh, things we wish we would have said differently. Choices we make, and we're like, man, that wasn't a good choice. Things we would have experienced, things we wish were different. And the resurrection of Jesus, it answers all our disappointments. And it answers all our regrets. And you say, you know what? I wish I would have gotten married. Or you say, you know what? I wish I I wish I had a happy marriage. And some of you might say, you know, I wish my wedding day went different. Or you say, you know, uh, any number of things. I wish, I wish, I wish. And, and you know, be, friend, because of Jesus and him being physically raised from the dead, The Bible talks about you and I having a marriage that goes far beyond what we could ask or imagine. The New Testament teaches for those who have trusted Christ, we are headed towards this mysterious wedding banquet in which the church is somehow brought together. Uh, The church is the bride of Christ and it's married to the risen Jesus. And you say, you know what? I wish I would have traveled more. I wish things had been different. I wish I had more money. I wish I lived in a nicer house. I wish I lived in a nicer apartment. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Well, let me tell you a story. There's a person um, who's kind of known in the Christian world. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. And she became a quadriplegic as a result of a diving accident when she was 17 years old. Can you imagine Can you imagine your whole life like seemingly gone? You're diving, having fun with friends. And you end up in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. And every week in church, she went to church every Sunday. And every week when she attended, the priest would say during the liturgy, he would say, now let's all kneel. Let's all kneel down. And it drove home the point. That she couldn't get out of her wheelchair. That she couldn't move. And she was once at this Christian convention. And the speaker said. Now let's all kneel down. And worship our God. And everyone at the conference. Got out of their seat. And they kneeled down. And they began to worship John, God. And, but except Johnny. Johnny couldn't do it. Johnny was strapped to that wheelchair. As a quadriplegic. And she began to cry. And she was crying and crying, but it wasn't because she couldn't move. And this is what she said about that experience. She said that she says, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I'll be free to jump, to dance, to kick and to do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop ungrateful grateful. Glorified knees. I will quietly kneel. At the feet of Jesus. And she concluded her statement. By saying this. She said. Can you imagine. The hope. The resurrection gives. Someone. Who is spinal cord injured like me. Friends. The hope of the resurrection. It's not just that. The resurrection promises. Hopes. New hopes. And new feelings. Uh, the resurrection promises. Us. Us. New physical bodies. Now, I don't, I don't. you know, there was a karaoke night with a bunch of us. I didn't go. I don't know who can dance and sing <laughs> in this room. And, uh, you know, and if you can't dance and you've always wanted to dance, the resurrection says one day you will dance more beautifully than all of the dancers here on earth now. And if you've always wanted to sing. But you can't sing. The resurrection promises that one day you will be able to sing. You don't need to have a bucket list. There is a time coming when our bodies will be resurrected with Jesus because he proved that he could do it. Where everything will change. The things that hold us back now will peel away. We no longer have to be held by those things. We want to talk in a certain way. We'll be able to talk in a certain way. We want to be able to do something that we can't do now or think something or spend time with someone the way we can't do it now. There is a time coming where we will be able to do it. We don't need a bucket list. We can get rid of our bucket list. The resurrection, it deals with our past. And the resurrection deals with your future. You say, hey, you know. I'm thinking about the future. Um, I'm a little scared. I'm a little afraid. I'm afraid of getting old. I'm afraid of getting sick. And I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of having to suffer or some sort of suffering. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of taking risks of leaving what I know to be true in my job and putting it all on the line to do the thing I think God is calling me to do. I'm afraid that if I stay in this marriage, I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to really experience the love and affection that I need. And whatever, friend, whatever your anxiety may be, the physical resurrection of Jesus is the answer to your fears of the future. And one day, you will have a perfect life. A real, concrete, physical life that Jesus offers when he raises you from the dead. So the encouragement is, who cares what happens to you now? What ha- who cares what happens to your future? It's not the permanent state. Who cares? We can be brave. We can take risks. We can stay committed to the things that don't seem like they're going to pan out. We can make sacrifices. We can deny ourselves instant gratification now. Easter is not just an inspiring message or philosophy. Jesus is. Is not a ghost. It matters for our minds and our hearts and our wills. Because one day. Your future will be as it should be. And that is because of the physical and tangible resurrection of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well this series. We have been talking about the real Jesus. And we're going to conclude that today. And what we discover in the real Jesus. Is that we discover that the real Jesus leads us. And he empowers us to become the real us. That is the, that is the mystery of this all. The real Jesus is real. He does things, but it leads us to become the real us. The best versions of ourselves. It leads me to become the real Chris. It leads Nicole to become the real Nicole. It leads Patrick to become the real Patrick and so on. The real you is out there. And when we connect with the real Jesus, you are on a step further of becoming the real you, the real you that God intended you to be. And so I just hope on this Easter Sunday that you remember that the real Jesus rising from the dead is the real thing that can help you become the real you.